Hello and welcome to The Prestige, a podcast all about films, filmmaking, filmmakers and film theory. Um, Each week we're going to pick a movie, review it, talk about it, discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. This season in particular we're focusing on um, directors for a period of uh, four weeks at a time. And as always, we'll end with our recommendations of further reading, further watching, inspired by the film of the week. But before we kick off, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. So, Rob, nothing. <laughs> I, I I haven't watched nothing of note in the last week. Um, right. Essentially, I've watched the season eight of the Supernatural series. I've watched the. Uh, season finale of Critical Role, uh, nothing of note. The only thing of note, and it isn't even a movie, it isn't even a TV series, is that I have this week finished one of the best books I've read in a long time. I know this really isn't the podcast for that, but I wanted to put a, a shout out there, because it is going to be a TV series soon. Um, and that is The Wise Man's Fear, which is the book two of the King Killer Chronicles from Patrick Rothfuss. It's high fantasy, there's magic and dragons and fairies, all that kind of malarkey. Um, it's very much in the Tolkien-esque um, sort of, it's not Game of Thrones fantasy, certainly. But it was brilliant. It's just, it's evocative. It's wonderfully written. It's won many, many, many awards and it deserves all of them. Um, but that's kind of, you know when a book just locks in with you and it just kind of, if you've got five minutes you're reading the book? That yes. was what it was for my, the last week of my life. So my movies, my TV have suffered, uh, but my, my book reading has triumphed. So yes, The Wise Man's Fear, which is book two. Book one, equally good. Great. What about you? Um, well, I I have been similarly lax. Um, I have to say there's only one thing I've watched. Um, and this close to her due date, there's the only one thing that my wife wants to do, which is sit indoors and watch Harry Potter. So that's what we watched <laughs> this weekend. Excellent. Well, I'm yeah. glad that I, that I took the shine off you earlier in the year so that you yes. could... Yeah, um, we watched Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is not my favourite of that series, but still enjoyable enough. And I think Una Stubbs in particular, I think she's she's brilliant. Um, that so that's the only thing I've watched this week. Fair enough. Fair enough. So this week, guys, we are, as Sam said, carrying on with our Joel Schumacher series. And this time we are looking at the 1999 thriller, 8mm. This is the mortgage, Cindy's college money. If I do right by Mrs. Christian, the circle she runs in, this could be the break we've been waiting for. Can't take more than a couple weeks. That's all I can tell you, honey. Sometimes you can't know what I'm doing. It's better that way. It's always that way. You come highly recommend Mr. Wells. You're praised. For your discretion. Thank you, ma'am. As you know, my husband passed away recently. Yes. My husband was the only one with the combination to this safe. These were my husband's private things. I didn't. I didn't realize. Do you want to tell me what you found, Mrs. Christian? Eight Millimeter tells the story of a protective paid by Nick Cage. Um, who gets a job delving into the murky and seedy world of snuff films, or in this case, a snuff film. He is sent to track down if this snuff film is real, and if so, what's involved. 
Nick Cage has excellent support from some great actors from like Joaquin Phoenix, Jennifer Feeney, Pete Stormer, Anthony Held, Chris Bauer, Catherine Keener. And it's about his journey as he kind of dives deeper and deeper into this world. Initially um, in California, where he meets Joaquin Phoenix, is Max California. Eventually ending up in New York into sort of the, the darker world of S&M and porn movies. It was a mixed response when it came out. Some people sort of lauding Schumacher's return to this kind of thriller genre. Some people turned off by its its more grimy and dark nature. Now, anyone who's a fan of the podcast would probably say this film probably sits closer to being my wheelhouse than Sam's, given the films we've talked about over the last couple of years. So I'm very intrigued to know what Sam thought of 8mm. Um, I'm going to be predictable. Sadly, okay. Um, I just didn't get on with this at all. Um, and I'm I'm sort of only it's, I it's not a very long film. It's just over two hours, and I sat there in the middle thinking, "This is dragging. Is this still going on?" Um, it it may be. To be honest, it may be just because I really, really don't like Nick Cage. That was one of my questions, whether you worship at the Church of the Cage. Oh, God, no. Okay. <laughs> you don't adhere to the one true God theory of Nick Cage. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's that's fair enough. <clears throat> um, I mean, th- I think there are interesting things to talk about in this film, and we will do so, no doubt. But it, it just... I didn't find the story ground me, and I, I just... Felt that it was a bit predictable, and it wasn't. It wasn't too. It wasn't the violence that turned me off, or the exploitative nature, or the 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 sleazy masculinity about it. It was just. It was just a bit dull. So that that's my overall review of it. Well, it, it may shock shock our read, our listeners to know that I actually agree with you. Um. <laughs> Not quite the I, I I certainly enjoyed the film. Um, at least, shall we say, and we're going to move straight into spoilers here, guys. So if you haven't seen the film, we're going to give away some of the ending. I've, I enjoyed the film up to the point in which Nick Cage's character goes on his rampage at the end. Mm. Um, I agree it's plodding and monotonous at times. And it just feels like th- th- there's no real tension to a lot of the film. Um, and his investigations don't seem to warrant any kind of sort of uh, anxiety in our part. Or a th- you know, it's a thriller, but there isn't that kind of thriller edge of seat nature of the movie. Um, and I would agree. I, I would say that I think that the, the end, say the end section in which he discovers who's behind him and goes on this kind of killer rampage, um, seemed quite out of place with the rest of his character, and certainly out of place with the rest of the film, uh, which at this mm. point had been quite a. Um, steady um, sort of investigation of this it felt to me like they were trying to say something about the you know the quote from Joaquin's favorite character when you dance the devil the devil doesn't change the devil changes you mm. they were trying to say something about that this, this, this family man had been kind of sort of worn down by this world that he'd been in but we didn't see any sign of that we didn't see any kind of sort of presentation of that from his acting style. There were some hints with costuming and lighting that will come to in time, but that kind of, that Nick Cage style, where you know you're watching Nick Cage, his acting didn't kind of gel with the idea of this family man being brought low. 
um, and sort of you know the, the grime of this world rubbing off on him. And so the end in which he goes on this killing spree just feels so out of character for the Tom Wells we'd seen up until this point in the movie. Mm. And you did, that, that was it. You didn't feel that he'd gone on some sort of journey. You thought, well, the only way in which he, the, the, the seeds of his... Um, the fractures in his relationship with the smoking at the beginning I quite like that and I thought they could have done more with that but the the character didn't seem to go anywhere after that no and, and the end, the very very end coda in which you uh, you see him sweeping up leaves it feels like he's now a haunted man mm. but at the same time you're like I don't you didn't give me any reason why he'd be haunted by this you know, no. um, he 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 starts off very much a blank slate. So you know, what he has his family and this, you you do see his love with his daughter. It just didn't feel. It felt like, and and, and I, I am the first person to defend the film for its visuals over its story, but this film felt like it was too much in love with presenting the little vignettes, little grimy, you know, be it the poor markets, be it the underground. Videos, be it the these fake snuff films, it was too in love with this world it was talking about, mm. and didn't have enough time to actually tell us a story that made any kind of ending have any kind of validity, or certainly any kind of emotional heft. Yeah, I I felt that what it was trying to do, the parallel it was trying to set up, and you saw glimpses of was. The fact that the reason Tom Wells was so traumatized by this was because he has a daughter, mm. and he was imagining that if this were his daughter in sixteen years, but it was left to the viewer to make that connection, and it didn't feel like the acting or the script or the film in general did enough of that. Yeah, and I, I have nothing wrong with a film that makes the audience work. I enjoy a film where it's like not all the answers are given to you. But you need some signposts. You need something where you can go, oh no, I see what you're saying. That little moment for me to work on. Mm. But there was none of that. It was just because, well, he's got a daughter, and you know, daughters. Um, and yeah. it was just sort of petty to make that leap. Um, that being said, I do, you know, it, it does present the world, the world it builds is certainly a believable one. You do get that grimy, grubby feeling from watching the film. Mm. Um, that is clearly what they were going for. And whilst we ended at the end in kind of, you know, sort of scenery-chewing vi- um, villains, especially from the amazing, I, I, I can't praise enough Peter Stormare, who is stocking traders, these kind of grimy bad guys, um, who plays Dino Velvet in the film. Hmm. Um, character actor, been in thousands of movies. Um, he's, he's brilliant in it. Um, but it just also didn't go anywhere. And the other, the other thing, and I'll touch on this before we move on to talking about the bigger themes, it felt to me the film was trying to say something about the nature of demons and the nature of, of evil and the banality of it all. The, the, you know, the idea that the, the film starts off with this grimy snuff movie in which Machine, as he turns out to be called, as appears to be this same kind, this kind of force of nature. And, and the film does this work where it tries to just deconstruct this whole idea of a snuff film as being a... Icon, uh, icon of, of evil. There's, there's, there's a symbolic movie that is the evil of man. 
and mm. it ends up being well it was made because a really rich man could and the three yes. guys that made it were just men they're just blokes especially machine who with his name of machine um he's very much using iconography and very much using this kind of symbolism of a character he isn't he ends up being this guy called George, and he says, "You know, I wasn't abused as a kid. I'm, no one's hurt me. I just do it. I'm just a person." Hmm. And the film feels like it's trying to keep trying to say things about this kind of the nature of evil, but once again, it doesn't hit home. And it, I mean, oh, this don't want to preempt any recommendations, but the writer of this also wrote Seven. the the thing The thing is that I was looking into the history of this film. The um. The relationship between writer, producer, and director was a very troubled one. Yes, and it, it may be that that may be behind why this film doesn't quite work. And I think it, it's interesting that the that um, Seven seems to explore some of the same ideas uh, of that. You know, the arbitrariness of the evil man, the serial killer in Seven is just a bloke, just a man, hmm. um, to much greater effect and to much more sort of emphasis and I think you know in Fincher he found a Fincher? Who did? Seven. Oh god Fincher. Fincher yeah sorry <laughs> I went blank there like suddenly I think, um, when it came to Seven he like th- th- that was a, a match that worked and the story hit home here whereas I can, you can I feel you can see the seedlings of the same kind of ideas in this movie but they just don't go anywhere they just don't have that kind of conclusion hmm yeah Anyway, good things about this film. Good things. As I, I think that the world it presents is a great one. I think that the the supporting actors, particularly Gandolfini and Joaquin Phoenix, were were fabulous. I think they were so good. Gandolfini, who has made stock in trade of playing bad guys, um, gives them heart. And even in this one, where he is a bad guy, you see him swing wildly from being this kind of scared person to the sort of I don't know the the ball busting ending in which he he sort of stands up for himself. Mm. Um, I enjoy both of them, and this may move us a little bit towards our, our theme for the week. Shall we say our our thing that I noticed suddenly is the way that it handled the idea of, of, of voyeurism. Voyeurism was the the word I kept coming back to when I was watching this movie, and the theme that really struck me home on this. And the film always was always shooting through things. So many of the scenes were shot through windows, shot through cars. People mm. were moving in and out of the action. Um, and even if you when you had uh, the two main, you know, the two guys, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Nick Cage, people would walk in front of them. And you always felt like you were looking in on this, and that you were that the audience were as complicit as whatever else in this same kind of world. Hmm. When I, I was I was struck with this when. Um... Tom first meets Mrs. Matthews, or mm. no, first meets. Um, there's a, there's a neighbour that points him in the direction of Mrs. Matthews. They, he he walks up some stairs as someone cuts across his shot, and then it turns out she's the one who's going to talk to him. The camera comes back to her, and you think that there's lots of, um, sort of including vision and also suggesting that there's more to the shot than mm. just focus on the character. So yes, I did think of that. And the thing that, thing that I did like is, especially in the sort of the middle section in which you're in New York, in, in, in California, there's a real sort of idea of 
I know the, 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 the film kind of tries to make the audience as complicit as anyone else in this story that you know we you're taken to these what these three locations one of which appears to be like a a in a, a Mexican um, brothel it seems to be a, a poor market you're taken to it's underground in like an abandoned tunnel and then you're taken mm. to what appears to be an active BDSM club and for each one of them you're very much given little tidbits. It's never explained what these places are. It's never explained um, too much about it. You know, the first one, it's kind of like there are people kissing and there are girls on the sofa, but are they prostitutes? You don't know. Um, you don't understand what the, unless they speak Spanish. The, the Spanish isn't subtitled um, when they talk. The second one, you've got all these unmarked boxes, unmarked videos, the, 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 the harrowing scene in which you just have has kids and a bunch of tapes. And in the last one, it's all very dark. And as a, as as a audience viewer, you're 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 drawn in with these. There's all little mystery boxes, aren't they? They're all little things. You're like, oh, what's that? What's that? What's that? And you end up being intrigued by all of this stuff. You know, it's not real. You end up intrigued by the world it's creating. Hmm. And then it obviously posits the same thing. You're being intrigued by child pornography, rape films, S and M films, gothic hardcore, whatever that is. And you're kind of it has this kind of balancing effect. You're looking at it. these people are uh, none of them are um, m- most of them are watching. They're they're not you know participating. They're watching stuff, and you end up being the same thing. Like it kind of takes you on that ride, and suddenly you're in this place where you're like, I'm as I'm, I'm as intrigued by all of this as anyone else. Hmm. Be it sexually it, or not. That that um, thing about the language in the um, in the Mexican sort of quasi brothel they go to is really interesting because. When even when Joaquin Phoenix asks him about a snuff film and is in Spanish, Joaquin Phoenix's Spanish is bad, mm. and you think, well, even the characters who are meant to be a part of this world are excluded from it. Even Max California, who's supposed to be the, I mean, the gateway to this world, he's showing worlds in, into it. He's he's something of a of a cipher for Wells' presence here. He, even he is excluded from this because he he doesn't really know the lingo and he gets chucked out and mm. he's the one. I mean, they have to. Tomas has to placate the man with money that California's come a cropper there. So you think even the characters themselves are excluded? And I, just to a quick little aside there. In terms of the story that felt weird to me. The whole scene. So I'm like, if this is his world, why why would he burn the bridge? Hmm. You know, he, ultimately he's, he's and suddenly he's kind of known the guy asking for snuff. Like it's it's that seems like a strange one. But I I, I I see what you're saying. It felt like this, like it was strange. Like we weren't being kept. It wasn't distant. It wasn't, we weren't being kept at arm's length. We were just kind of not given enough information. It left us hungry for a little bit more. Hmm. But as I said, the the, the voyeurness of it, and I think if you look at Tom Wells' character, you really like, he he's in surveillance. His literally, his note is literally voyeurism. Mm. Um, it starts with him taking photos of a, a senator's son-in-law and his girlfriend, um, and it, he all about watching, all about him. You know, when he was watching Galafini's from across the road, um, the very last scene in which he he, he stalks machine. He's this is him watching from a garden across the road, uh, and it's all about his 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 voyeurism on this world, and he keeps it at arm length. But somehow, when it comes to this. The snuff film it gets into him and that whole end sequence is you know the result of him 
his voyeurism going too far and he becomes part of the picture part of the world he's living in or watching he gets drawn into it rather than being as he previously was a product of a step removed Hmm. And they say, I mean, it's signposted it right at the beginning when um, Langdale is, is talking about, he's, he's sort of summarising his academic career and and other people went into law and banking and he went into surveillance mm. and Nick Cage says, because I thought it was the future or he says, because it was the future or something. Yeah. I think, well... That that's what's at the centre of this film. There's one man who believes that voyeurism still has a part to play. Yeah, and and, and because it is the future. I mean, if you want to, if you want to get real for a minute, you know, we live in a day and um, day and age now where a lot of our lives are voyeuristic. You know, social media itself has raised the idea of voyeurism in our lives, of our friends' lives, of strangers' lives. But it's a complicit one. We're putting it out there now. Um, mm. So that there is, I don't think he's wrong in the idea that it's the future. No, it's interesting that I mean, it, I, I suppose this is not something that Schumacher would have foreseen in 1989, but it's it seems very dated because of all these. I mean, Nick Cage, all the equipment that Nick Cage has is very high tech for its time, mm. but this does seem a very dated film because it, it it was on its way out and he says when he's talking to Dean and Velvet, you're the only one who shoots on this anymore or who, who copies it to, to video anymore mm. and th- there is a sense that he's saying it's the future but we all secretly know that this is on its way out and this is not just me speaking from 18 years later there's something in the film where people know that the 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 days of this are numbered there's something nostalgic about it and i suppose you get that in in the fact that it's a historical murder it is Mm. seven years in the past i think that that that, i mean that's the the other thing is that the until the end, the end two scenes, it's all it's all in the past. It's all watching old things, looking at old movies, looking at old pictures, um, and the only only things unravel once you kind of he breaks that fourth wall, the fourth wall in the fourth wall, as it were, when it comes to mm. Tom's Wells and us. I wondered, I I mean, have you seen this before? Was this a rewatching? No, no, it, it was fresh to me. All right. Did, what did you think? There were a couple of red herrings. One was um, the machine-like mask on Max's um, counter when he was in the shop. Mm-hmm. You had you had Tom looking at them and thinking, "Oh, hang on, this is a clue," and then it turned out not to be a clue because Max wasn't involved at all. And then another one was I. Th- well, I thought there were hints that Mrs. Christian was going to be involved in some way, and then she really wasn't. She obviously wasn't in the next scene. Yeah, I mean, this is this is where I worry sometimes that I've watched too many films um, mm-hmm. because when the opening scene with with Christian, Miss Christian, and the and the lawyer, all I could think is one of you's in on this. Mm. One of you knows about this. Um, Elvrit turned out to be the lawyer. But it, it always threw. I'm like, yeah, I don't trust them. Something's up there. And I was, yeah. like, I was with you. I was convinced it was Miss Christian. I thought she knew more than she let on. Um, but as it turns out, it, it was the lawyer. But yeah, I, I think. I mean, the film. 
it's one of those strange things. It's hard to sort of it's hard to say now because like these days, back in 1999, we I was what I was 17, so I don't remember S and M being a large part of the cultural conversation at that point in time. No, we this, a, this was pre-internet. It was pre word about internet. It was pre a lot of the internet these days. So the idea of S and M and that whole scene was still a bit unknown. Um, and so I understand with with, with the mask like that. There's a oh, that's what it is, because back then it wasn't as as well known. You know, there's one line. One made me laugh while watching it, uh, where Max California saying, "All perverts these days, you know, it's all going on the net, sending pictures back and forth from their modems." Hmm. And I was like, I, "Like, you're right. But that's where the whole thing's gone. Like, the version of this these days is an entirely different film. Hmm. Um, because it's, it's all online. It's a very different, different world out there." Um, and I think like the film, I don't think the film's dated. I think the film is dated in that way. But it, it is interesting that the film does highlight like the voyeurism we live in now is a very different one. It's still there, you know. There's still this this allure of, of the unknown. You got we can look at websites like Reddit um, and something awful back in the day. And these sort of things, you know, the videos, the, these kind of extreme videos that like the dark web exists for a reason, all that sort of stuff. So it's still out. It's still going on. Mm. One thing I wanted to mention before we finish is the fact that this film uses music really well. And it uses music in in sort of a similar way to, to the way that un, unsubtitled Spanish is used to sort of alienate a quote-unquote conventional Western audience. It feels... The music feels faintly North African or Arabic in mm. tone at times, and it feels like Nick Cage is being presented as the voyeur, as sort of sort of a borderline criminal himself when he is investigating this. So through through the way it's presented, he is presented as a character that we should see as someone morally dubious from the beginning, before mm. he even starts starts the descent into being involved in this world. I think that's one of the, one of the Nick Cage traits in it, but in his later work, is that you don't he isn't designed to empathise with. Mm. He has that kind of distance as an actor from the audience. Um, that is used to great effect at times, but here it's mean like you want someone there where you feel you feel his um, sort of familiness at the start. I have the same issue with among my issues with Knock Knock from a couple of years ago with Keanu Reeves. In that he's meant to be a family man at the start who kind of falls um, down in some sort of depravity, um, but you just don't buy the family man. You just don't buy that kind of connection. That he hasn't got that warmth and that empathy as an actor. I think and that that was something that really worked with John Wick talking about Keanu Reeves is that th- that moment in which that that time in which he's a family man doesn't exist in the film mm. so you you haven't got room not to believe in it because he's instantly into grief-stricken mode yes yeah so Sam do you have some recommendations for us I've got a couple. Go uh, yes, one is tied to this music idea um, that I want to end with. Um, the guy who did the music for this film is someone called Michael Danner, who also did the music on a film that I wanted to see for a while and got around to seeing a couple of years ago. 
Um, it's the 2011 film Moneyball. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, this film seems to be more my sort of thing than necessarily yours. It's to do with sports and it's to do with maths and it's to do with not very much happening. Um, but it's a very well made film. It's well directed. Brad Pitt is good in it, and the music music's a good a big part of that. So that would be my first recommendation. Okay. My second recommendation is one that I know I've mentioned before, but I will mention it again because you can't mention what the line too many times and that's my second recommendation because Joaquin Phoenix is very good in that and I I wanted to see more of him I suppose this is towards the beginning of his career really hey millimeter how old yes. was he mid-twenties um so what the line um he, he was very good as was um, Reese Witherspoon as well, but Joaquin Phoenix primarily. So, Walk the Line is my second recommendation. Excellent, excellent. I've also got two, um, and one's kind of thematic, um, but not quite. And that explains that the other one is it's just an axe link. So, my first uh, thematic, but not quite, is the ninth film two years earlier, 1997, is the film Preaching to the Perverted. This is a good, good name. Yeah, it's, it's a British. It's a British film about a um, a minister who employs a a young man who he knows to infiltrate the London S and M scene. Um, he has to gather evidence for the minister so that they could clamp down on the on these S and M clubs. And it turns out he, he falls in love with the scene. It is a much more light hearted take on the S and M scene, and through people who I know are part of the scene, it's far more accurate, shall we say, than than, than eight millimeter treats it. Um it's a it's a bit of a cult classic British film from the mid nineties. It's very nineties. Um in it in its way I've got it on VHS somewhere on the wall in front of me here. Um but it's does feature Ricky Rick, Rick, Ricky Tomlinson dressed full in drag, which is always worth seeing. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's very sweet in many ways, if you can say that about an SMM film. Um, and if you sort of have any interest in kind of or any kind of nostalgia for mid nineties British movies, it's a very good one uh, to watch. My second recommendation is just an actor movie, and it's a very it, it, it's a strange actor to talk about, and that is the actor who played Machine. Uh, the played Machine is uh, Chris Bauer, and as soon as he took the glasses off, I'm like, I know you from somewhere. And it turns out I know him from everywhere. He like, I looked at his IMDb, he's been in everything. He's another character actor who pops up a lot, um, very often playing, as he does in this, sort of evil characters or unpleasant characters, um, and often sort of violent, repressed characters. And whilst this certainly isn't his his harshest character, he does bring that same kind of repressed anger to his role in 2015's Tomorrowland. Now, this is a film that I I champion a lot, because I was a big fan of it when it came out, I still am. He plays Clooney's dad in the early flashback scenes in the uh, what, 50s and 60s. Um, and he once again plays this kind of father who kind of doesn't understand his son, doesn't understand the science, and has that same kind of anger in him. Um, but essentially this is a chance for me to talk about a film that I love and I want to chat about. So that's Tomorrowland. Um, see it if you haven't. Brilliant. 
So, next week we are uh, bringing our Joel Schumacher season to a close. Um, it, the the certain events in my house, uh, notwithstanding, not notwithstanding, what's the word? Let's start again. Next week we are bringing our Joel Schumacher season to a close. If events in my house allow if not then Rob may proceed with our next director um, until then you can get hold of both of us on Twitter at Prestige Podcast you can find just me at Rob Kaiju and you can find just me at Life underscore Academic and I maybe, maybe even both of us will see you back here next week Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.